I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Today we have another sharing episode. Every few weeks we share a podcast that we've enjoyed listening to and think you may as well. This one is about women, the workplace, and how we define winning and success. The Broad Experience and its guest, Kath Bishop. There's nothing about addiction that we generally see as positive. But that's the, the loop that we're really using by this winning. I want to win something. I want to win the next one and the next one. And often each time we win, it's got a sort of diminishing return. I don't think if we step back, we would think that that's, that's a sort of healthy way to live our lives. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim is away this week, so I have a chance to share the work of a good friend and colleague, Ashley milne tight who hosts the podcast The Broad Experience. We'll hear more from her later in this episode. Ashley has been producing her show for 10 years, which is way longer than almost any other successful podcast. We're sharing part of an episode that she did about winning. Many of us are obsessed with it. Ashley spoke with former British Olympic rower Kath Bishop, who competed in three Olympics and won a silver medal. Today, Kath works in leadership development, and she's turned her research and experiences in sports into a book. It's called The Long Win, The Search for a Better Way to Succeed. We begin with Ashley asking Kath what research tells us about competitors at the Olympics. Quite often what they find is the happiest people are the bronze medalists because they're comparing themselves and thinking, I'm really glad I didn't come fourth. And the gold medalists are often thinking, is that it? Uh, you know, when does everlasting happiness begin? You know, is my life changed forever or do I actually still have the same flaws I had two hours ago and the same relationship issues and all of that? You know, there's this sense that you're you're waiting for this perfect moment and suddenly, you know, the heavens are going to open and, and you have divine happiness ever after. And of course, you're you're sort of working that all through. And the silver medalists are looking up thinking, oh, you know, I was one, I was one place off Nirvana in, in that divine moment. And so, you know, I, I was for a long while going to write about what it's like to come second, because I think it's an experience that happens to all of us. We go for jobs, you know, we get down to the last two and we don't get it. And we have runner ups in, you know, everything in life. 
But what I realised in the kind of way I was doing my research and having uh, interviews, I was finding that people who won weren't very happy and were often feeling slightly depressed and empty and wondering, is that it? And I thought, oh, hang on a minute. You know, if winning isn't even working for a lot of our winners, then something has gone very wrong in how we are playing this whole game. Kath competed in the Atlanta Olympics, the Sydney Olympics and finally Athens. So the first two were very much dominated by this macho narrative about, you know, it's all who's the winner. And, you know, if you lose, you've got to show how much you hate losing because that's what winners do. So you've got to be, you know, beating your chest and bereft and grief stricken. And it's the worst thing that could possibly happen. Because if there's any sniff that for some reason you're not distraught about losing, oh, well, that's a sign that you're not a winner. And just hearing you talk about sport made me wonder, do you, what do you think when over the last few months, we, you know, there was the incident with both Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka kind of stepping away and saying, I'm not going to do this for a while. I'm not going to compete or finish my part of the competition. That must have really struck you having been in the world that you were in and having written the book. Yeah, absolutely. I think there have been some kind of real major rethinking moments where athletes are not wanting to go down a, a track that is going to lead them into a mental health issue that is ongoing, regardless of the medal you have. What is it that's of lasting value that you take with you? What's the story about the way you won the medal? Because that matters. And my goodness, in gymnastics, gymnasts all around the world have been through horrendous things in the pursuit of a medal. And many have said they'd give the medal back if they could change the experience. I mean, to me, that gold medal does not represent a success that we want to repeat or emulate or that is healthy for sport or society or for the next generation to bring them into sport. And and that's where I think, you know, now we've got athletes saying we need to reshape the narrative for sure. And I think it's also really interesting to look at the journey of Emma Raducanu, this brilliant young British tennis player who came over and won the US Open, who actually got to the fourth round of Wimbledon. She's never won any games on the ATP tour. And actually, she pulled out of the fourth round match at Wimbledon, having had you know some dizziness and her breath not quite being there. And again, commentators piled in saying, oh, she's too weak. Oh, she hasn't got what it takes. But that's not how she rationalised it or her team. You know, they literally were just in that kind of learning place of, well, actually, we didn't prepare right. And, you know, we've got to this position we hadn't prepared for before. And now we know how, how next time to do it better. And she takes that with her into the US Open. She plays qualifying matches plus every every round of the US Open and never at any point does her coach set her a goal to win the match. She's purely there enjoying the process and learning from one game to the next. And so that has been another moment of an athlete redefining a mental approach to success that doesn't focus on winning, but actually brings fantastic results. You point out that there's a whole vocabulary around winning, a whole sort of set of phrases and language in our everyday lives, like win-win situation. I mean, there's loads of things, aren't there? But very common nowadays is killing it and crushing it. I find that very unattractive, unappealing language for me, but it's definitely related to the winning language, isn't it? Crushing it, killing it. I totally agree. It's a language of aggression and it's a language of violence. Um, I mean, even the whole sort of we don't even really think that things like targets, you know, that's actually fundamentally comes from a world of, you know, 
putting bullets through targets and, uh, you know, deadlines. A deadline originally that comes from the line that was drawn around prisons. And if prisoners stepped over this line, they'd be shot. So we do have a lot of that language. And, and it's interesting. I think, you know, that's part of what I see as a, as a, a unhelpful to performance approach in, in sport as well. If we hate our competitors, you know, we literally release a different hormone in our bodies. It puts us in a different mindset. We actually become afraid of them. We're much closer to that fear driven motivation rather than actually I need my competitor. They're, they're the one person that understands what you're going through most. They're the one person in the world that probably has, you know, most in common with you. And actually you need them in order to get the best performance. So, you know, we actually should be striving together. And that's that's what the original meaning of competition. So competere in Latin is about striving together. How that meaning has changed. And she says the whole societal love of winning, it comes from our long history. Emphasis on the his. It's come through a, a male-dominated world of, if you think winning starts probably in the history books, when we learn and we look at history told through the victor's eyes and mouth. And of course, the victors tended to be male through centuries of fighting battles. It was a very aggressive world. It was all about power and wealth. And that was what was important. So if we look at centuries of the history books, then we see this utter focus on domination and who is more superior. And, you know, up to a century ago, that's sort of how things worked. And in a conventional world that we used to live in, you could argue that, OK, that's that's kind of how things functioned. She says the problem now is that we're faced with issues that aren't win or lose, whether it's climate change, inequality, international security, global health. These are all ongoing issues that aren't about who's got the right answer, the best answer, the most dominant answer, the most powerful person in the debate. They're actually about how we work together to try and create a way forward that works globally. And I think in this world, that narrative is now really falling down. And that's why we need to reframe things. And that's why a much more diverse set of voices is important, because I think that heroic male voice, which is something that a lot of men as well, um, don't want to connect with, but almost feel they have to. That's the role they have to emulate and step into. I think there's a lot of male voices who want something different and don't want to be in that heroic fixer mode. In her current career, Kath works with teams and organisations on reframing the way they think about success. Kath calls the framework she's developed the three C's. And the first is with clarity to actually clarify what matters and to go beyond anything that's just a short term goal that's finite that will be over. So whether that's a race that's going to happen and finish or a set of quarterly results that will happen and finish. What are the things that have lasting value to us You know, from that race or from those quarterly results? What, what matters that stays with us? What's the longer term piece? What is the purpose? Why would that race or that set of quarterly results be important? What do they move you closer? closer towards. The second C is constant learning. We were designed to grow from from the moment we're born. We're all about learning. And it's only if things sort of stop that process that that we get stuck for a bit. But fundamentally, that's that's what life is about. And it is an intrinsic motivator at a much deeper level than than, you know, an A grade. And an A grade distracts really from the process of learning. So I think to have that sense of how can I just each day be improving things, trying things out? What new things am I learning? 
what are the ways in which I could do something differently or, you know, who can I bring in to challenge or support me? Who might I ask for some feedback that I haven't asked for feedback before? The third C is about connections. Prioritising human connections in everything we do. We cannot succeed on our own. Again, the last couple of years have reinforced for us the importance of social connection. So, you know, again, why would we be putting these tasks on our to-do list above developing relationships, connecting with others, reaching out, listening? Those are the things, again, that, that for me, uh, I want to look back at the end of the day. You know, how did I listen to people today? Who did I get to know a bit better beyond the transaction that you may have needed within your meeting? You know, who did I get to know in a different way and what questions did I ask about them and, and how might that enable us perhaps to collaborate in a different way in the future. So to really kind of put that, the, pe- the quality of the relationships as actually that's part of my success today, not just ticking off uh, a set of tasks that I won't remember in a year's time. I told Kath that when it comes to that middle C, constant learning, I have been wanting to relearn Spanish for a long time, intending to, thinking about it a lot, but I haven't quite decided how that goal ranks in importance alongside all the other stuff I have to do. You hit the nail on the head there. You've got to clarify whether it's important enough. If it isn't actually that important to you, then it won't happen for sure. But if you believe at some level that I'd like to do it, but actually I believe this is more important for me to do today, then of course I'm going to go and do those other things. So there is, I think, that that needs to, when we're clarifying what matters, we're clarifying it at that sort of deeper level of not just, you know, I, I, you know, when you say I've got an intention to do it and I think, well, that's only the beginning, isn't it? We all go to work with good intentions, but the workplace can often be a very difficult and unhelpful and uncompassionate place. So, so I think it is about sort of having that sense of, do I think this is the right thing to do? Do I really want to do it? Is it going to make a difference? Am I going to regret in the future not doing this? Do I believe it's more important than this other work I've got to do? I mean, when I was writing the book, it took me some years to, to write the book. You know, it's absolutely nobody else was scheduling it. And there were times when I put it to one side for a couple of months and I thought, oh, I've got all these other things. I've got this work. I've got this stuff in my diary. I've got, you know, family commitments, very important. But I came back to it because I kept thinking, do you know what? This is more important than these other things that I'm doing. And so I'm going to come back and pick it up again. It's a, it's a question of, of really thinking about what's most important to you. It is. And I, I think it's important to be thinking about that sort of on a daily basis. So quite, quite often we have a moment where we, you know, at New Year's or at a certain point, we think, oh, yes, now I must do this. But it's actually getting up in the morning and going, what really matters today? Um, be, you know, again, being quite honest about that, you know, and, and thinking, is it, is it just getting through the list of the electronic calendar? Is that really, is that really what, what's important about today? And in a year's time, am I going to remember anything I've done today? What are the things that matter most? And that's the question to keep answering, to keep asking yourself. Otherwise, you're in an automatic pilot. The months and the years kind of just roll by and we actually haven't done things that, that have a lasting value. It's quite a, a switch in mindset to think what long-term success, which let's face it, society thinks success is all the showy things. So you have to get comfortable in yourself with success being something a bit different, something that's day to day or week to week, and that might be a bit quieter and less showy. Yes, I think that is right. And it's a really interesting thing about how our brains work, that we have the opportunity almost to tap into something that's maybe less showy, but sort of so much more meaningful, that kind of you know resonates much more strongly within us. If you think about it, we're, we're almost sort of working on a, 
um, on an addict's part of our brain. So we kind of use what, what a gambler would use that, you know, oh, I've, I've hit a target, or I've got a little dopamine hit from that, or I'll do, I'll do the next one, do the next one, do the next thing. And there's nothing about addiction that we generally see as positive. But that's the, the loop that we're really using by this winning. I want to win something. I want to win the next one and the next one. And often each time we win, it's got a sort of diminishing return. I, I don't think if we step back, we would think that that's, that's a sort of healthy way to live our lives. There is this other part of our brains that that is open and ready for longer term thinking that is linked to a sense of the values, the purpose that we have, why we're doing things to kind of connect into you know, our ancestors, the future generations, all of this thinking that can be so strong in, in other cultures that actually we would very naturally fit into if we just allow ourselves to to let our minds go there or to read a bit more about it. And that's where I think there is then just a sort of untapped well that I think once we get started on that, we suddenly realise, hang on, we've been in the wrong game. Kath Bishop speaking with Ashley Milne tight on her podcast, The Broad Experience. Find her shows at thebroadexperience.com. My interview with Ashley on Women at Work next. Some lessons and surprises. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ashley, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you very much for having me. So in your podcast, The Broad Experience, what have you learned about women and the workplace that perhaps you didn't know uh, before you started it? Well, I will say 10 years worth of shows means that I've learned way more than I can neatly encapsulate. But there's one thing I remember from very early on that was born home to me by a guest, which is that women of color have quite different experiences in the workplace than white women. And of course, I started the show because I had had some interesting experiences as a white woman in the workplace. And I was aware when I did, I did a lot of market research before I started the show. I was aware of the makeup of the American workplace, the female makeup of the American workplace was quite diverse. But in one of my early interviews, I heard some stories that made me think, oh yeah, I've really, I've really got to keep in mind that I need to keep speaking to women from all different backgrounds to get a full picture of their experiences in the workplace. It, this can't be just about middle-class white women like me. One of the stories I remember this guest telling me was that 
And she was actually working for a rather august global newspaper at the time in the UK. And the kinds of things that she would experience would be, you know, being at a, a gathering somewhere, um, a conference, something like that, and being mistaken for a member of staff, the tea lady. Yeah, the tea lady. <laughs> we don't have tea ladies in the States, but but in, in, in England, the tea lady is the person who goes around and offers people tea, which, which is uh, very frequent in the UK. Yeah, exactly. Or then, you know, what would co- probably count now be called a microaggression, but a colleague at the paper would would say something like, well, obviously, you know a lot about African bonds. It it was a financial-based paper. She's from the Caribbean. But that kind of comment, and, you know, I've never experienced anything like that. Do you think that workplace discrimination has in any way narrowed? Is there a better understanding in many workplaces by men of the problems that that women face? I think that probably is because just in the time that I've been doing this show, which is a decade, there's been a tremendous change in the sheer amount of attention on this topic, right? When I started in 2012, in fact, somebody, it felt a bit niche. I hate to use that word about 51% of the population and and most women do work, but it did feel like at the time something that women talked about among themselves, but something that, yeah, a lot of men weren't aware of. And I think now because of the enormous amount of attention that started with Sheryl Sandberg publishing her book, Lean In, which was back in 2013, and, you know, former member of Hillary Clinton's staff, the State Department, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who then wrote a piece about her experiences trying to be this incredibly high-level woman in Washington and coping with some problems she was having with one of her sons at home. That article went viral in The Atlantic in 2012 and combined that with Sandberg and then Me Too. You know, the Me Too movement started up. Right after the election of Donald Trump, there was a massive demonstration, wasn't there? Well, yeah, there was that. And then Me Too, if I remember rightly, because I remember where I was when I heard about Harvey Weinstein. Um, It was the fall of 2017. And that kind of kicked things up a notch as well, that suddenly all these things that had happened to women over many years and in the realm of whether it was suggestive comments or full-on sexual assault, that women had simply kept to themselves. And a lot of this did happen in a workplace setting. It was all much more out in the open. The broad experience, as you mentioned, has been around for 10 years, which is really long for a podcast. You were something of a podcasting uh, pioneer. What do you think is the need for your show? What kind of connection have you established with your listeners? This is really interesting for me to discover because honestly, what did I know when I started it? But what was so interesting was that I started hearing from people quite quickly. I, these emails started popping into my inbox with people saying, wow, you know, I heard the show about such and such, and that's exactly what happened to me. Or people would want to tell me their stories from their own life and workplace experiences. And this was resonating with people. And the other thing is, is that I was I was really made aware that 
women had felt incredibly alone with this stuff. And they felt hearing the stories of other women and their experiences was very affirming for them and made them feel less alone and isolated. When you say that women feel really alone with this stuff, what do you mean by this stuff? Well, it it could be anything that happens to them at work. So it could be something incredibly inappropriate or worse that was said or done to them at work, you know, that they're not going to tell anyone about. I, I think this is the thing is that for decades, when something untoward or unpleasant has happened, you just don't talk about it. You, you, it's something that you just have to put up with and don't talk about was the feeling, except perhaps among your girlfriends, right? But hearing about other people's experiences and realizing, oh yeah, this has happened to lots of people is freeing in a way, just to realize that you are not the only person in the world that's experienced this. There's something really warm. You get a really warm feeling from that, from not feeling so isolated. And it's not just you. That's really valuable. I feel like just that is a a service to people who listen. And it's not just women who listen, by the way. I've also heard from a bunch of men over the years, which has been instructive as well. I'm among your listeners. So what should uh, we men understand that perhaps even if we're kind of well-intentioned, we don't about women in the workplace? I guess the, the main thing is that we do have different experiences. Most workplaces or many workplaces do tend to be male dominated or certainly at the top, right? There are more men than women. And the workplace, you know, it was invented by men for men. Women didn't work outside of the home. They worked in factories a couple of hundred years ago, right? And in homes, but they tended not to work in offices. That's a 20th century phenomenon. And the workplace wasn't built around their personalities or needs. And the workplace can be a tough place for women because the guy in charge doesn't look at you and me the same. They look at you, Richard, they see a version of themselves. They feel comfortable with that, they respond to that. They see a woman, and it, especially if it's a woman of color, that's two places different from them. So you're treated differently. And it may be really subtle, but this is the kind of thing that over the years, this feeling of not quite fitting in, it may not be overt discrimination at all, but this feeling of not quite fitting in, not quite feeling comfortable is what drives a lot of women out of the corporate arena. The episode with Kath Bishop that we're sharing um, is a good illustration of perhaps a solution, a fix, because we're how do we fix it, that many workplaces should consider, which is a greater emphasis on teamwork and how they define winning. Yeah, no, I I love doing the show with Kath because she made me think about things that I hadn't really thought that much about before. And because she was a competitive athlete for this big chunk of her life, she has that experience of competing and winning and the pressure to win and, you know, how disappointed you can feel even if you come second. And when she went into the corporate world after she left sport, she found that to her surprise, it was really quite... um, quite arranged around the whole idea of winning as well, just in a slightly different way. So she's really devoted a lot of time to thinking 
rethinking the idea of winning and what winning actually means. What has surprised you most in the decade that you've been doing your podcast? Okay, so there's one tiny thing which really did surprise me, which is years ago, long before transgender rights were part of the news, I did a show about being transgender in the workplace. Because what could be more interesting than being a woman in the workplace and then transitioning and being a man in the workplace and vice versa? And I interviewed two people who had done just that, a trans guy and a trans woman. You don't change jobs when you transition, which many people, of course, do do because they want to get away from it all. But you stay in the same office because your colleagues are accepting. So you have been John and now you're Susan and you are treated completely differently as Susan, even though you same clients, same office. It's just that your appearance is completely different. You're now appearing as a woman and boy, do you notice the difference in how the sexes are treated. And that's so fascinating because it's the same person in the same workplace. So you, it's almost proof that this, these prejudices exist. Um, and they, of course, they weren't recognized as being the same person, which they were, but they, they certainly noticed uh, that their status had changed. So that was absolutely fascinating. Um, and then something else I think that we don't really think about, it's flipping the man, woman in the workplace thing on its head, which is that there won't be true equality for women in any in any phase of life, but in the workplace in particular, unless men are free not to focus so much on career and breadwinning, right? Because women, young girls now, if you think about it, they're told, oh, you can, do, you can be anything you want. You can do anything. You can have babies, you can work, you can stay at home with your children if you can afford it. Women have all these options now, they're told they do. But if you think about it, we don't tell boys that, do we? Not many people, I don't think, are telling their sons, you can do anything. You can stay at home with your babies, you don't have to work. Men don't have that freedom. They're still confined largely to their box as breadwinner. And until that changes, there isn't going to be equality, because how can there be? I've never said this to a podcast guest before, but Ashley, you should write a book. (laughs) Maybe I've got one in me further down the line. I think you do. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Ashley Milne-Tite, host of the podcast, The Broad Experience. Our show is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. Jim returns next week. Our producer for seven years in a row is the most excellent Miranda Schaefer. How Do We Fix It? is a production of DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.